Welcome to Back to the Future, a limited podcast series where we speak to startups revving to go in a post-pandemic world. And now let's welcome Mr. Shiva Ramanathan. He's a Chief Consulting and Growth Officer at Kesher, a payment solution company. Now, Shiva has nearly two decades of experience across multiple fields uh, from private equity to M&A to corporate finance to startups. Uh, he was also last at AirAsia as a global growth officer. Mr. Shiva, you've had decades of experience, like I mentioned earlier, in building and growing companies across the world. Indeed, from your LinkedIn profile, you mentioned that you take pride in being able to start up companies in any industry, in any country. What's the secret ingredient in being able to do so? Oh, I got to be careful what I write in my LinkedIn profile. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Berlin, um, for, for having me here and, and happy to share my experiences. I think there are a couple of traits which you, you can develop with attitude that you need to be able to take on any challenge. Number one, I think it's agility, right? You must be open to, to be jumping on new learning curves and not be just comfortable and then complain about your job being so very boring and mundane because you are already at the plateau of that curve. Adding on to agility, I would say curiosity, right? You need to, once you get on a new learning curve, you know, the learning curve is like your S-curve, right? You sort of start off flat while you're learning about the organization, learning about the industry, and then there's a sudden ramp up, a curve running up where you are learning, you know, you got to move very fast. And then when all the things happen, where you do big projects, you have milestones, and then you get to the flat part of the curve, right? So you must be curious, I feel, and look forward to sprinting up that steep part of the curve, right? Because if you don't sprint, you will fall down because it's very steep. That's another important trait that is adds on to your agility. One that's very important, and by the way, this is no way of uh, ranking in order. It's just, it's Mm -hmm. humility. It's very important. Because when you get on new learning curves, you jump onto different industries, people will always wonder why, why are you here telling me what I already know, right? Respecting people, culture, and be able to adapt is very important. And I'll just share a short story about when I was working and launching the, the X business in Thailand. I was launching two countries at the same time. And back then I was doing the flying in on a Monday, setting work, flying out to another country, setting work, and then checking back on them later on, you know, at the end of the week. And I used to find that during the meetings, you know, the Thai people would always say yes, yes. And, you know, don't say much during meetings. Right. And when I come back, things hadn't been done. You know, I eventually learned that in order for me to earn their respect, I have to be there with them and, and work together with them. So I have to become their your friend first, and then work happens, right? So that's a very important aspect, I think, that you, you really need to, to do. And the last thing I would say is, as I've done in many times, don't be afraid, accept and learn from failures, because that's the only way uh, get up and move on and face the problems of the next day. So agility, humility, and a willingness to learn all the time are interesting advice. Now, um, yeah. Mr. Shiva, if you could walk, walk us through your involvement at Keisha. When did you join? What is it about Keisha's business? opportunities that captivated your attention? Sure. So um, I was introduced to Keisha to one of the early investors, right? Um, and and uh, I met uh, the co-founder. Uh, basically, Keisha is a, a Beijing-based uh, fintech company. All of the tech is China tech and all of the business is in ASEAN. Uh, currently, I'm, I'm, uh, I moved on from a consulting to, a, to assuming the chief growth officer role. Uh, and what, what I like about Keisha was that they were solving a problem uh, of uh, how do you en- enable Chinese travelers, right, uh, 
uh, whom you know only live in the Ali and WeChat Pay environments, right? Mm. How can they come and consume when they are traveling into Southeast Asia? So, you know, uh, uh, that was a, there was a need there. There was a problem that needed to be solved because there's communication. How do merchants be able to upsell to, to the customer if you can't communicate in the language? So the solutions for the merchants that Kesher had done uh, was very interesting. Uh, they decided to set up the office in, in uh, Thailand first because Thailand is the number one destination for uh, Chinese travelers, right? And to be able to solve that problem, and, and I liked what they were doing there. You know, they wanted me to help them replicate that success in the other large ASEAN markets like Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's, it's these young guys uh, getting out of, of uh, their comfort zone and coming into a new area uh, and, and I think the results speak for itself uh, as of 2019, before COVID, and I think we'll be touching about COVID a lot during this conversation, um, you know, Keisha was the number one uh, payment solutions platform uh, cross-border between China and, and, and Thailand, which demonstrates that, you know, we know uh, we're solving the problem for both merchants and customers. So, so that, that, that was the thing that interest, uh, attracted me to that uh, the company. I see you've touched on the evolution effectively of, of Kesha's uh, foray into ASEAN, starting with Thailand. I think from, from a website, as you mm -hmm. also mentioned, I think it started with effectively focusing on Chinese outbound tourism, right? Going to mm -hmm. the King Power and the, and the likes in, in, in Thailand and shopping there with the WeChat Pay and Alipay. How have things evolved since then? Obviously, tourism came to a standstill last year, as you know, uh, and how have things evolved and, and uh, what are the aspects, what are the industries uh, is Kesha uh, focusing right now? Right. So, you know, the, the unfortunate thing and the fortunate thing about uh, COVID was it stopped the travelers, right? So the company lost, uh, you know, we were three-year-old startup already, you know, EBIT positive and so you know well on the, on the on the verge of becoming a unicorn kind of company but we lost all of that right but what Keisha also does was to try and encourage digital transformation within the local economies right uh, there are a lot of uh, local wallets uh, in in the ASEAN region and we wanted to aggregate all of those ASEAN wallets into our platform to enable a roaming payment kind of a model so give you an example uh, your mobile phone, right? You, uh, you could be a Singtel customer, but you travel to, to Indonesia, you just switch on your phone and you roam on a partner network and you, you don't have to worry about the bills, your bid bill in Singapore dollars according to Singtel. Same thing with payments. Unfortunately, uh, the local wallets, even the, the, the big ones like Grab, were not ready to do integration for cross-border. They were trying to solve the, how do I increase consumption within the domestic markets, right? So we had to put a pause on that. And then when COVID happened, all of a sudden, you know, we have more than uh, 600,000 merchants uh, on our platform. Uh, they lost that, that customers and they came up to us because they trust us. Again, you know, relationships of our trust and said, can you provide us solutions in order for us to win domestic uh, merchants? So we then evolved into providing uh, SaaS solutions uh, for, for the merchants. Uh, and and uh, tapping the domestic market. So again, in a typically startup uh, fashion, we you know it took us about two months to launch our first MVP, push it onto the market, and and today the team is is uh, recovering, uh, the, the business is recovering by providing you know software solutions, uh, software as a service solutions to domestic merchants, tapping the local consumption market, and what we see now 
is that all of a sudden people are now becoming more digital. And now the big wallets are coming to us and saying, hey, can I now access your merchants in Japan? Can I access your merchants in the Middle East, et cetera? So, you know, that's why I say for us, it's a, it's a, it's a COVID was a, was a, a disappointing time, but also a blessing for us uh, to be able to execute uh, Acacia 2.0, which is, which is, was delayed uh, because of the adoption was low. So that's some of the ways that we've uh, sort of, you know, uh, ridden on this uh, COVID uh, nightmare, which is now coming to an end, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully and hopefully, I think. Well, and on, touching on the geographical spread of Keshe, it alluded to the you know, presence obviously in Thailand and across mm -hmm. ASEAN, but also um, Middle East, Japan, also from the website, I saw that your presence in Canada, Russia, yep. places that are quite far and, and you know, um, quite diverse. Um, what us to the evolution of that? Was that was that through partnership, or it just so happened that you know Chinese outbound tourism uh, happened to be going there, and then you guys were uh, present there? A lot of this is uh, through our partnerships, right? So um, in the European Union, for example, uh, if you get a because uh, we got a license in the UK, so if you have a UK license, then you are you automatically open some of the European countries, right? Um, and uh, for example, in Russia, we were working with a, a bank there, doing uh, integration there, primarily serving the Chinese travelers, right? Uh, so how we evolve focus is definitely in uh, uh, Southeast Asia, where we apply for the, the licenses in those countries. But in other countries, it's, I would say, opportunistic. Sometimes our investors connect to us to, to strong uh, partners. For example, in the Middle East, which a market that was, we knew was important, uh, but it was not really our focus for now. But one of our investors connected us to a, one of the large industrial families uh, in the Middle East, whose business, well, one of their businesses was looking at, at uh, monetizing the Chinese travelers. So, you know, William, it's all about partnerships first, right? Mm. And then the business will follow. So when we have strong partnerships, you know, we go ahead, set up uh, Kesha Middle East. And that's really the mantra on how we, we sort of, you know, get into countries. Uh, certain countries, yeah, we, we apply the license. Certain countries, we write on a partnerships license. I see. What's the, how about the model going to Indonesia? I saw again from the website that uh, Kesher is expanding into Indonesia. Yeah. Given your role as a you know, chief consulting group officer, is this where you spend the most time on uh, in terms of this project? Yeah. What will be different about this market compared to all the others if you're tackled? Indonesia has, if you talk to any of the, the you know, uh, we are in the middle of a Series B fundraising. So if anybody listening out there want to talk to us, please contact me. And a lot of the VCs are, you know, who are Hong Kong based or US based or UK based, Europe based, they see Indonesia as, as the holy grail, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, in ASEAN, 260, 270 million population uh, is the largest, right? So, you, but it's also fast becoming, as you know, uh, well, and, uh, actually a very dangerous uh, uh, bleeding ground because there are too many players in there. It's a crowded mm. space. It's a red ocean. The incumbents, you know, like Gojek is building uh, its own ecosystem. So we started to look at Indonesia in the pre-COVID time to provide services for Ali and WeChat. So that has always been our entry point because, you know, uh, the banks over there were looking for partners to do the China processing. We uh, started to talk to the, the big banks, but then of course COVID stopped a lot of these things, right? So incidentally, interestingly enough, Vietnam has now become that, if you ask to answer your question, I was starting to spend time in Indonesia, but then Vietnam presented an opportunity for us to be able to go there and be the first to pilot cross-border transactions, okay, together with, uh, uh, with Alipay. 
um, and in partnership with uh, one of the largest retail banks over there. So I am spending now on Zoom. Uh, hopefully I can travel with the vaccinations. We have a huge game plan in Vietnam. Vietnam is just under 100 million population. Uh, personally, I think it could be bigger than even Thailand in terms of opportunities. It's slightly far behind. So to answer your question, Indonesia, we will keep uh, a watching brief. We will, we will not go in there. We will partner with a payment gateway. We'll leverage a bank's licenses. We adopt the leverage strategy over there. Uh, but in Vietnam, where it's slightly more greenfield, we will go in hard as we will in the Philippines as well. So, so that's the, 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 the focus uh, uh, growth moving forward. You touched on in terms of regulatory and environment in Indonesia and also a bit on that in, in, in Vietnam. How would you say ASEAN space, if there's any common theme at all in terms of regulatory environment, what yeah. could countries in the region do more to, to boost the take up of electronic payments even more? I think ASEAN has a very compelling case for democratizing financial inclusivity, right? Because, you know, there's a large unbanked population in Indonesia, Philippines. I mean, all most of ASEAN is largely unbanked and they need to be able to participate in the, the digital economy. I think we just have to look at China as an example. Great example of financial inclusiveness, right? So, so that's the, the problem statement. I think ASEAN needs to, to really push this. Now, you talk about central bank. Again, unfortunately, the central bank in different countries have got different levels of maturity, uh, appetite to get into the, as I said, you know, a new learning curve, uh, do something different, right? BOT, so the Bank of Thailand, very progressive. You know, bad. So countries like Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, very progressive central bank. Other countries, for example, you know, Indonesia is, is beginning to start to kind of legalize how they do cross-border, right? In terms of regulation. Vietnam is, is completely, they have, they have uh, suffered a little bit from like Indonesia in terms of the, the gray area transactions and then mm -hmm. they're trying to legalize it. I think with the new government, our partners are very close to them. We are going to do a, a special project under the supervision of State Bank of Vietnam. So that's another a country that's beginning to get more digital, if you like. But one thing I've always felt, you know, you know, we all talk about ASEAN, right? We all talk about a united collective uh, marketplace, but we're all very fragmented and we all work in silos. Right. Um, so I think more can be done because there are lots of lessons from Thailand and Singapore that can be shared. So the central banks, I'm saying, should work together. We don't need to you know, reinvent the wheel kind of thing, right? So that's my take on, on the, 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 regulated, the regulatory space. Every country is different, but there should be more cooperation uh, within the country's learning from the more mature regulators. I wanted to zoom out a bit. I mean, obviously, you've been in many different industries. I wanted to tap your brains on this cross-industry comparison. You spent many years, for instance, in Asia, as you mentioned, uh, as mm -hmm. a global growth head, pushing for Asia X launches and all that. Now, um, comparing Asia and Asia, obviously, uh, in many ways, comparing apples and oranges, very different industries. But what are the some of the similarities? I think the similarities between, let's say, the traditional. So, you know, so I've worked in the family office, uh, private equity. I've worked for the large conglomerates, you know, in, in, in Malaysia. So very traditional kind of companies. I even did a stint in government in the digital agency, right? So I would say the similarities between the traditional companies that I work for and, com you know, adventurous companies are more and more. Uh, interesting companies like AirAsia, Keisha, and all these uh, startups. I'd say, you know, they're all very profit-oriented. That's fairly obvious. Um, and, and they're all very sort of, you know, people-centric, uh, people right? But if you look at the, the way they motivate 
the people, it's 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 very different, right? Uh, you get more out of the startup kind of in, uh, environment where you empower your people, right? The differences, obviously, it's the hierarchical way of traditional companies, right? It's like a pyramid. You got this, the boss at the top, and then you got all the various layers right down to the workers on the ground. And the workers on the ground very rarely interact with the top, right? And and this is this is a huge problem because this hierarchy also affects innovation within companies. I find, right? Mm-hmm. It should be a hierarchy of ideas and not a hierarchy of position, which is what it is like in most companies. I mean, traditional companies that I work for, that I named earlier on, you get given a piece of work. You don't ask a question why you're doing it. You don't understand what's it going to go for. You do it, you hand it over, and then it's a black hole, right? I think it's 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 different today. And, uh, you know, the companies need to change moving forward, especially with the, with the young people that's coming in the marketplace right now. I like this um, comparison between hierarchy of idea and hierarchy of position for sure. Well, uh, just one last question for myself. How would you advise youngsters nowadays? People straight up from school, they're starting out, they're, they're wondering which field to go to, so-called traditional industries or to jump straight into startups. What would you advise them? So, you know, let's look at the the, the, the characteristics of the young youngsters right and i can speak from example i have two sons uh, my eldest is uh, 21 he's just graduating this summer uh, he's going to get into the workforce my second son is 18 doing his a level so you know they are restless right they they want to make an impact from day one right they are very socially conscious they're very concerned about the environment concerned about the good that they do and they're also very agile right um they want to solve problems uh, they don't like media, you know, uh, day in, day out, sort of, you know, bond type instruments, if I may use a comparison, right? So this is the trend that's not going to change. So, so the, and the kids, I, I mean, the youngsters are not really worried about traditional companies or, 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 or startups. I think they want to go into an environment which serves all of the needs, like I described above, right? So my advice would really be to the traditional companies. And the, my advice to them is that, look, you can't operate in your traditional way of working, if you want to be sustainable, right? The question they should be thinking about is, how can I remain relevant in the future? How can I be attractive to the millennials and the zillennials to choose to come and work for me and not work for me as a last resort? Because if they don't do anything, they will be the last resort company and they will be lagging. And it's a shame because in ASEAN, the traditional companies have been the ones that have been contributing to our GDP for generations, right? I'm talking mm-hmm. about, you know, well, and like the construction, agricultural, uh, manufacturing, uh, there, there's so many problems to be solved, right? But the way they're uh, organized doesn't facilitate that, right? The boss must always make the decision. And this is why you find that most of the youngsters, this is my view, they, they kind of gravitate towards the startup scene because it serves all of their qualities that they are there, you know, that they are qualities. And the traditional companies say, no, 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 you must fit in. So you've got to change the mindset of traditional companies. So my advice really would be to the to the, the traditional companies and not the youngsters. Youngsters, you're doing what you're doing right. And that's the that's the way it's going to go. We can't sort of, you know, uh, uh, change you. That's the right way. <laughs> I see. Very interesting. Well, on that very yeah. inspiring note, uh, hopefully more companies will hear the advice and you know basically adopt some of these um, interesting uh, measures of startup-like culture within the traditional companies in a way. Thank you for so, that. Thank you for your yeah, time. Yeah, thanks. It was, it's a great, great to have a chat with you, William. Thank you very much. And that was Shivaramanathan of Kesher.
we heard how he's helping the payments company to continue breaking new grounds in various ASEAN economies. That concludes the seventh episode of our Back to the Future podcast series. Please join us next week as we turn our attention to a Singapore-based startup called Engage Rocket. We'll be speaking to the founder, Jitong Leong, and we'll learn about how his company is automating employee feedback and analytics to help companies across the region engage their employees better. This has been a podcast from OCBC Bank. Follow us on Spotify for more episodes like the one you've just heard.